If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In fact, I made lists of them. Some crimes over that winter were called a Jack Shepherd crime because um, the press had called them that. Some were called a Jack Shepherd crime because, say, the magistrates or the judges had called them that. And some were called a Jack Shepherd crime because the perpetrators had called them that. That was Claire Harmon on the impact of literary descriptions of crime in the 19th century. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's interview is with the author and biographer Claire Harmon, whose latest book delves into the murky world of Victorian murder. She spoke to our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorn. So today I'm in Oxford to speak to the award-winning writer and biographer Claire Harmon. Claire's latest book is Murder by the Book, a sensational chapter in Victorian crime, which looks at how the murder of an aristocrat in 1840 sparked a moral panic about the nation's reading habits. Claire, can you tell us a bit about the murder of Lord Russell and why it's so interesting to a literary biographer like you? Well, I kept coming across references to it in the papers of writers because I was writing a book about Charlotte Bronte and I was researching um, things that connected with Thackeray and Dickens. And, and so, first of all, it just it came to my attention as a, a, a ghastly, notorious murder of 1840. And I didn't know of any connection between it and the literary characters at that point. Um, but because, you know, if you're doing any research into a particular time, you get to investigate all sorts of byways and you, you're you willing to be and are readily diverted during your research into topic A. And so I kept um, just, just picking up on the importance of the murder, uh, not because the victim was anybody particularly well known, but the family, of course, was very well connected. Um, and the Russell clan were, were a very, very uh, significant Whig family and, you know, had fingers in every political pie at the time. Um, but Lord William himself was, you know, this rather sad, lonely old gent living in Mayfair. Um, and so it didn't really seem to me a very notable murder until I found the connection between his murder and a literary controversy of the time, which then 
It's partly explained why all the writers were so animated about this crime, um, but also that it really did extend for them a, a controversy that had been going on for about 18 months before the murder took place and that had really had really gripped literary London. They, they'd got themselves into a real stew about, about the literary controversy um, and then the murder seemed to just extend that and, 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 and make it more appalling than it, they could possibly have dreamt. What happened on that night, the 5th and 6th of May uh, in 1840, uh, was quite puzzling to people because um, in the morning, the servants discovered their master's body in bed. You know, so this was actually in a bedroom in Mayfair and his throat had been cut really deeply. I mean, so his head was almost severed. It was one huge gash to the, to the throat. Um, and there were signs of a burglary. There were things scattered around the house. Um, uh, it looked as if somebody might have broken in through the back door and then gone out through the front door, which was not open, but it was unlocked. And uh, there were little bundles of things around the place. You know, the furniture had been overturned. So the immediate assumption when this was all discovered in the morning was that there'd been a bungled burglary and that Lord William had been murdered because he was there in his room. But... Of course, it didn't take very long to to think there were some puzzles about that. You know, why it weren't more small items taken away? I mean, why were there bits of silver still wrapped up by the door? Uh, Why would anybody actually need to murder somebody in their bed if he was asleep? Uh, What on earth was this all about? And why why hadn't more been stolen, really, too? It just, it seemed like a, a peculiar set of circumstances. It shocked people, obviously. I mean, it was shocking that anybody could break into a house and murder someone. Uh, especially when the police were, the new police force was um, assiduously patrolling that area. In the notes, uh, the uh, force notes, the police force notes, it says that they came around every 12 to 13 minutes, which is an incredibly small beat, isn't it, if you think about it? I mean, those two constables must have been circling round and round all night, although those two people did also say they were drawn away between two and four in the morning to another burglary. Somebody criticising the police in the wake of this murder did say, the streets are all very well now, they're safe, but it's um, driven burglars indoors, you know, so they're actually breaking into houses to get out of the sight of the police, which was a rather strange theory. But, I mean, it's part of this concern about, you know, what was going on, how 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 could you be safe in your house anymore? So it, it does become a story which um, has a lot of of narrative going on. It's got a lot of elements of a story that then can't be accounted for. And that did partly intrigue the writers who were watching this story unfold. But then, of course, when there was the further information that that the crime could have been connected with an actual book, that also implicated them as well as just intriguing them. Perhaps you could um, elaborate a bit on the connection between um, the crime itself and the expansion of cheap reading materials that people were really worried about. Yes, well, the um, crime itself happened on the 5th of May, the night of the 5th and 6th of May, 1840. Um, the prime suspect was identified pretty quickly, although those first few days were also full of um, suspicions of other people. Um, but, but there was an arrest fairly soon afterwards. There was a trial in June and there was an execution in early July. So between, you know, it was only two months during which the whole of this drama was being played out. But um, during part of that, uh, when the suspect was in prison awaiting execution that's when the 
the uh, the news broke that he had his, he confessed to having read a book that had inspired him. Nobody had been able really to work out why on earth he killed his master, if indeed he was the only person involved in this crime. Um, but uh, he he hadn't really made any statements at all, um, and the motives seemed a bit feeble and peculiar. Uh, but then when he came up with this either excuse or real reason, and who is to know, of having been um, profoundly influenced by a novel called Jack Shepard. What had happened there was that the year before, in 1839, when Jack Shepard by William Harrison Ainsworth started to be published, um, it was a very popular piece of um, kind of pulp fiction, really, in, in certain ways. Although Ainsworth was no slouch, and he did he prided himself on doing historical research, which, you know, he did some um, tremendous research really into all his subjects, but then he'd kind of jazz it up um, and make it into a kind of rip-snorting um, uh, novel. And he was especially successful with Jack Shepard because uh, it was a, a story of a kind of lovable thief, you know, somebody whose crimes were actually not terribly appalling, mostly just housebreaking. Um, but who kept getting caught by the authorities and who kept escaping from prison in more and more bizarre ways. And it was based on a real-life character, Jack Shepard, from the 1740s, who was very well known to, you know, to everybody, really. He'd been in, in, in the popular culture for about a century. He was the, the character from whom we get the um, phrase, uh, Jack the Lad, that kind of um, snook-cocking, cheeky, uh, young, underclass uh, criminal hero was... A, a, a subject ripe for Ainsworth's pen, and Ainsworth really hammed it up. And, and it, it is a very, it's a very alluring novel. It's not, it's not beautifully written, unlike the novels of Ainsworth's friend and protege Charles Dickens. Um, but Ainsworth's book um, really hit hit a sort of note with this public that was a new public, basically. Um, in the uh, well, between the eighteen twenties and the 18, late eighteen thirties. Um, printing became much cheaper. If you were another, uh, you know, working class person, you could you could buy a book. You didn't often bother buying a book because you could also borrow a book from the circulating libraries, which uh, bought you know all the major sort of popular titles in droves. Um, and of course, it was exactly the same point at which uh, literacy was really taking hold amongst working class men and women. And nobody was rewriting for this audience. If you think of what the novel was a fairly recent phenomenon anyway, if you think of, of the novels of Richardson, um, Fanny Burney, Jane Austen, uh, and, you know, Mariah Edgeworth, all these kind of novelists of the turn of the century, um, they weren't writing books which your average um, manservant or maidservant in London would particularly appreciate. Once printing became cheaper, of course, there were titles written specially for that market. There were formats devised specially for that market, you know, like broadsheets, broad um, pamphlets, uh, knockoff versions of, of more famous works. And um, money could, re real money could be made there. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down 
and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So what was it about Jack Shepard that really got people's backs up? Was it the fact that it was a lot more violent than any of the, anything had gone before? Or was it purely because it was reaching a much broader and, to some minds, worrying set of people that might be reading it and getting the wrong idea? I think the latter uh, is the case because uh, certainly it's it has got some very violent scenes in it, but it's no more violent than a lot of, you know, low-grade fiction. In fact, it's quite restrained in some ways. Um, So, you know, I was reading it for these passages that might um, inspire me to crime when I read it myself. And and I I can't say I was moved to do anything at all naughty even. (laughs) So it's it's slightly puzzling about how it could have been seen as a a huge moral, um, you know, danger, unless you see it in terms of that reach that it had. And it also wasn't so much a matter of people reading the book. So a lot of the um, ways in which people would have experienced Jack Shepard in that year, 1839 to 40, would not have been Ainsworth's actual novel, but it would have been the um, theatre versions or the uh, little uh, sort of chapbook versions of the theatre versions or the songs from the chapbooks of the theatre versions derived from the novel. And so, you know, as with all these things, once a text gets diluted and gets out into these different forms, it reaches a huge audience. I mean, it goes, as we would now say, viral, um, but it also um, accumulates other meanings and it, it gets coarser in some ways, but it also gets more specific. And so I think the Jack Shepard story became one of um, uh, anti-authoritarian, you know, it was a class war story in the end. Uh, Nobody really cared about Jack's burglaries. Nobody particularly worried about the murders because all the criminals in the story are seen to be actually the geezers, you know, the diamond geezers. Um, so it's a bit like the craze or something. It's, you know, did completely glamorised that that world rather than the crimes itself, but the whole culture, the underclass culture. You mentioned their class and the role that that played in all of this. What do you think the murder and the reaction to Jack Shepard tells us about class divisions in England at this time? Well, there were many of them, obviously, and there was also... Um, uh, this it was exactly the period of 
the greatest fears about Chartism and um, and the masses rising up. I mean, you had these um, you know mass rallies like the ones outside Manchester. Uh, you know, where tens of thousands of um, working men. It was usually almost always men um, would gather, and they were really asking for universal suffrage. I mean, after the Reform Bill of 1832, you know, which enfranchised a lot more men than before, but there was still a property um, uh, qualification. And uh, it, it it obviously assuaged a great many people's feelings, but not enough. And it, it, it quite clearly uh, provoked hunger for more reform and um, highlighted the kind of the bad old days of the Whigs, which actually the Russell family uh, completely represented, as well as being liberals and reformers. They were uh, old-style aristocrats who basically voted in their own obsolescence with the Reform Act. It, it did seem that once you know that the lid had been taken off some kind of box, um, there was a great deal of of agitation, I think, between ordinary working people and their supposed superiors. Um, something I found very interesting when looking at the actual structure of individual houses in Mayfair and also houses relating to each other within Mayfair. Mayfair being, as it is now, one of the most exclusive residential square miles in the country. Of course, you have all these rich aristocratic and um, army types and lawyers and dukes and dowagers living there. But of course, they have servants living in layers. So I mean, that the the class structure of Mayfair can had a horizontal and a vertical aspect to it. Uh, you know, so you'd have um, the class of people who are owned the houses or renting them. And then you have this massive, far greater number of servants. Um, the people across the road from Lord William had 11 servants in a household with um, two adults and two children in it. Um, you know, I mean, that's, that's a lot of, as it were, strangers to be living with, isn't it? And it did provoke a lot of anxiety amongst householders, you know, how to how to run your house in this age when um, your manservant might be a reader, you know, uh, your maidservant also might might be literate. I, it seems to me at the, at the heart of this and something I found really interesting in the book is somewhat of a hypocrisy, which is that Jack Shepherd was censored and there was a great deal of disgust at it. But at the same time, there was a huge amount of publicity about how it inspired this murder, how terrible it was. Mm. Well, that's a moral panic for you, isn't it, really? Um, it lands on something and we only really get to read about it or perceive it historically if it then is corroborated by some actions. It, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy to some extent because once you've got this term a Jack Shepherd in the press, which it was all through that winter, um, it, it then I was I was very struck by how um, in fact I made lists of them. Some crimes over that winter were called a Jack Shepherd crime because um, the press had called them that. Some were called a Jack Shepherd crime because, say, the magistrates or the judges had called them that. And some were called a Jack Shepherd crime because the perpetrators had called them that. So you know there there were various ways in which crimes, usually petty um, theft of, in that winter, would be described as a Jack Shepherd. I mean, as if there hadn't been a winter before when young men had broken into houses to steal things. I mean, obviously, this was a form of crime that was just, it, it will never have, have a beginning or an end. But at that point, it was it was associated with the book because the book was thought to have stirred up a, a, a sort of extra audacity about that 
that type of crime. And also, I think what really stuck in the craw, certainly of a lot of magistrates, was the lack of remorse shown by some of these young criminals. You know, that they didn't actually care, and some of them sought to be associated with it. They just wanted, they wanted to be copycat criminals in the mould of Jack Shepard because it was the big cultural deal. You know, so it had it had that sort of draw of anything that we have in the movies now that would be, you know, particularly alluring or, you know, some, a phenomenon like sort of Harry Potter or, you know, Star Wars or something like that. People who wanted to be associated with it in its smaller way, much smaller way, it was as powerful in 1840. This um, is the very, very beginning of the Victorian age. And I think a lot of people in the popular imagination, when they think of the Victorian age, they think of murder and crime in dark, misty alleyways. That may well because be because of things like Jack the Ripper. But do you think that the Victorians did have a particularly grisly appetite for murder that perhaps has carried through to our modern day? Or is that just a modern um, misconception? I think it's a lot to do with the modern um, bracketing together of all sorts of things under the word Victorian. And as you point out very correctly, I mean, 1840, Victoria had only just come to the throne um, and nobody had a had a strong sense of Victorianness, as they also didn't have a strong sense of Dickensishness. And um, But Dickensian and Victorian are now these, these powerful adjectives um, that encompass all sorts. I mean, poor old Dickens. I mean, Dickensian London is the London of dark streets, poverty, you know, intrigue, uh, passions, Um, because he wrote novels of his time, which he couldn't exactly help. But um, And uh, there were some, you know, grisly murders, no more or fewer than at any other period, I would say. But perhaps we just like the costumes and the sort of production values, and it does suit our sense of, you know, crimes being committed in the dark. And I suppose the Victorian era is the last dark, literally dark age, because if you think of, of, they had gas lamps and they had gas lighting, but, you know, once you get electrical lighting as a norm in the 20th century, crimes actually do seem different. It's a rather indulgent myth, isn't it? I mean, we we like to sit and also like ghost stories, we associate those with, with Victorianness. A lot of the way we, we think about the Victorian age is, is to do with literature and as a literary biographer I'm sure you're um you've written quite a lot about that could you tell us about some of you've mentioned Dickens but some of the other literary giants who were kind of involved in this or influenced by this um event uh, yes well Dickens is 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 involved in it and sort of slightly implicated in it too because of his authorship of what was seen as a Newgate novel it was early in his career uh, Oliver Twist which we now think of as a Dickens novel but at the time people totally associated it with this school of criminal romance, um, books that were written for a rather vulgar and crude audience. Uh, the other big name who was involved in this case was uh, William Makepeace Thackeray, who, um, again, he had he did write a novel in the 1830s, but he only wrote it as a kind of satirical exercise, and it was a very strange novel. Um, he was trying to write his own Newgate novel in order to... Um, uh, sate the public with something absolutely horrific. So he wrote a truly unpleasant novel. I mean, Jack Shepard um, was vilified as being, uh, uh, you know, uh, violent. But Thackeray's novel is disgusting, and he intended it to be disgusting. He chose a, a really gruesome crime from the Newgate Calendar, and he wrote it up with no holds barred, um, and n- nobody 
uh, took much notice of it at all, and and it didn't work. I mean, it was a it was a bad idea, um, not terribly well executed. But there was you know Thackeray who went on to write Vanity Fair, but this was his first go at writing a novel because he was a journalist really and an illustrator at the time. But he was very, as you can tell by the fact he bothered to expend his his talent on this worthless project, Catherine. He was a very um, uh, he was profoundly upset by the Newgate phenomenon and he wanted it to be hit on the head in some way. I mean, he, he, rather than, he, he he wrote against all the Newgate novelists in the periodical press and he kept adopting aliases so he could get more criticism of them in. Um, but he just didn't realise what how feeble that kind of campaign would be against this um, mass market appeal that the books had and that if he was going to counteract that appeal, he would have to do it in a mass market way and not in this kind of little clubman's um, infighting between the periodicals way. And really what was happening at just this time, the murder that I've written about, is um, this emergence of detective fiction as a form. And I do think that this emergence of detective fiction just at that period was profoundly connected with the growth of the market and this and this increase of literacy and of a, a, a public who wanted puzzles to solve. You know, they wanted um, uh, literary versions of just things that you can sit and and and, and mull over and, you know, uh, work out or guess who might have done the crime. And so, of course, it's an immensely appealing form. Um, but it's I think it's, it's always because of that challenge that it sets the reader um, it, it, you, you're given some information and you are invited to to sort it all out. Putting those two bodies of, of, of energy together is very, it's, it's a very good formula. Of course, it, you know, it does draw people in. That was Claire Harmon. Murder by the Book, a sensational chapter in Victorian crime, is out now in the UK, published by Viking. In the US, it will be published later this month by Deckel Edge with the different subheading, The Crime That Shocked Dickens' London. And we've now come to the end of today's episode, but we'll be back on Thursday when the topic of conversation will be the Royal Navy. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook? where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.